So last week we looked at Exodus 16, and the passage in Exodus 16 was the Israelites grumbling against Moses for food, and this week they're grumbling about water. So last week was bread, and this week is drink. And there's a really good reason for that. Um, it's it's actually the case that two weeks ago we were in John 5, last week we were in John 6, today we'll be in John 7. It's kind of like someone has set all this up. Um, so anyway, let's get started here. Um, there's a number of different themes that we're going to see in these passages. Um, we're going we're gonna to cover most of them theme by theme, but as we've been seeing in this Old Testament uh, survey kind of class or, or course um, or study that we've been doing, we've, we've been looking at these different themes that repeat themselves over and over again in the Old Testament. One of those themes that we looked at really, really strongly was the goodness of God. And it's, it's a very important theme that we begin to understand that the goodness of God is not just revealed in the New Testament. The goodness of God is present and established in the Old Testament. And so it's not God's angry in the old and he's happy in the new. God's good uh, to be poetic through and through. So anyway, um, one of the things that we looked at last week was this idea of spiritual complacency, that you and I are hungry for something and that we, we run from, from different things to, to other things in our life, whether it's fame, fortune, uh, sex, power, authority, uh, you know, weapons, uh, whatever, whatever we're going after, drugs, uh, you know, having people worship us and, and be our fans, whatever it is, people in life go from thing to thing and, and what they taste, it doesn't satisfy. And so this week, we're going to see how the Bible records that taking place with, with things to drink. We are, we are spiritually thirsty. Um, also, we're going to see this idea of a cyclical narrative. We've kind of seen this a little bit before, um, something that comes about once and again in the scriptures. Um, and then we're also going to look at how the church is the people of God. And um, in the midst of all of that, I think the whole point of this series has been getting an understanding that you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament because the New Testament is primarily interpreting correctly the Old Testament, whereas uh, Judaism was kind of going off into their own thing and they were taking the text of the Old Testament as their source and they were then when when the Lord started working through the church, they were then uh, going off in their own direction. So, again, we're all hungry for something. We're all we're all thirsty for something. It's not enough for us to come to church. Um, powerful as the worship might be next week, I thought it was a great time this morning. It's not enough for me. It's not enough for you to to come and drink of the Lord's presence and then go out the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday and coast on what you experience. And we need, we need to drink of Christ daily, and that's one of the prime points of this message. Um, but in the midst of doing that, in the midst of drinking and, and, and establishing a life pattern where, where you come to the Lord for your source of spiritual joy and spiritual water, uh, in the midst of learning how to establish that, if you aren't convinced of the goodness of God, you, um, you won't do it. It just won't happen. 
And um, it's often the case that you you get spiritually bored and spiritually complacent before you start noticing that there's no water in your desert. Um, it's it's not the case that you should wait until you're out of water to go be looking for water. Um, it's not an it's not as if you should just wait and you're journeying along through life and you realize oh we're in a we're in a desert I need the Lord I need to get close to God that at that point is probably too late uh, in that you're going to experience some dryness but if you begin to build a lifestyle of of engaging with the Lord um, where you drink from Him daily you'll find that you weather the wilderness pretty pretty well um, at some level in the midst of doing this. You believe and, uh, and begin to uh, live out this idea that friendship with God is impossible. If you find yourself becoming dry over time, you, you begin to live in such a way that you're not fully convinced that you can be friends with God, that God actually likes you through the work that Jesus did on the cross, that because of what Jesus did on the cross, God's disposition toward you is different. And so we forget the gospel. Uh, we forget it daily, we forget it every week, and we need to be reminded. Um, the, the, uh, the ancients called this idea uh, acedia, which is Latin, and we translate that as sloth. And it's, it's actually a seven, one of the seven deadly sins. And um, we don't talk about the seven deadly sins because we're not Catholics, and um, we just don't ever mention them. But I recently learned this concept of sloth, and it explained a lot of a lot of spiritual boredom in my life. And I think that this is this passage is talking about sloth. Um, I wasn't there, <laughs> or I didn't pay attention, which is probably the latter. The second's the probably latter of the case. So we forget the gospel, and we need to be reminded of the gospel. And in the midst of the gospel, if you don't have the goodness of God, you don't have any gospel because. Gospel means good news, and there's no good news if God isn't for you now in Christ. So this is the gospel that God, you can be friends with God, and you can have a lifestyle and a relationship with the Lord that is spiritually sustaining. So let's jump into the text. Exodus 17:2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Moses, in saying it that way, was saying, quarreling with me is testing the Lord. That there's an equal sign between those, those uh, two places. And it's actually the case when you come against the spiritual leadership in your life, you are actually coming against God. Um, and the reason why this is under the section, the goodness of God, is because you start to come against your spiritual leadership when you're not convinced that God has placed you in a good place. So these Israelites, they're, they're grumbling against, they're, they're, they're saying bad things against Moses. They're accusing him of bringing them out to die. And um, we saw this happen last week. They actually, they had gotten to such a spiritually bad place that they said, would that we have died when Jesus uh, came through and killed the firstborns, you know, when the angel of the Lord, which we saw in the last week and the week before, was, was when, when, when God was executing judgment against the evil in Egypt, we wish that we would have died under that. That's what they were saying. That's insanity. Uh, scripturally, if you die when God's coming to judge, 
uh, it's, it's not good. Uh, you know, you don't want to be counted among, uh, the sons of Korah. It's, um, it's, it's bad. Uh, we're, we're going to see Korah in a few weeks. Um, but here in, in Exodus two, uh, they actually, or in Exodus, uh, 17, three, they actually say, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They actually thought that God was going to use a lack of water to, um, to kill them. I, I don't know if you've ever talked to anyone who is into survival. Um, I haven't really, but I did watch an episode of Bear Grylls, and he, he says that uh, dying of thirst is the worst way to die. You can, people who are dying of thirst, they say uh, people who have come back from the experience or, or, or have given a report from in the midst of it, they say that you can actually begin to sense your blood coagulating in your veins, that, that you can feel things stopping uh, because the, the liquid is gone and things are drying up. That's a terrible thought. Um, so, so the Israelites actually thought that God was going to kill them in a very bad way. They weren't ignorant of what uh, they were saying there. They thought that they were actually going to die the worst possible death for, for them, which was to die without water. And the people question God's intentions, and, and they only question God's intentions after they, in their hearts, believe that God wasn't good and didn't have a good plan for their community. Um, it's not just about God having a good plan for your life. He does have a good plan for your life, but it's also God having a good plan for his people. And that is primarily what we want to establish in our idea of the goodness of God, that God has a, a good plan for his people. In verse 7, it says, He named the place, Moses named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? They did not trust that God was in their midst, and we do the exact same thing when we are slothful in our communion with the Lord. When we give way to hesitancy in our prayer in, in, and uh, we put off reading the word, it's not about a performance thing. It's about you can actually read the word in a slothful manner, and you're just going through the motions. But if you're not experiencing God in the midst of the word, you're not coming to him as your source of spiritual drink. We had seen uh, last week how Jesus concretely explained in John 6 that um, he was the bread which came down from heaven. And this week we're going we're gonna to see how Jesus says he's the rock. But before we do that, in verse 6 of Exodus 17, it says, Yahweh is speaking to Moses. He says, Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it so that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, what's interesting here is Moses is instructed to, to strike the rock, but the, the beautiful thing here is that Yahweh says to Moses, God says to Moses, wherever Moses is, he's probably meeting with the Lord in a private place, um, and, and Yahweh says to him, I'm going to stand on the rock, and when you strike the rock, water is going to come out. And it's my opinion, along with a number of biblical scholars, that this is a Trinitarian uh, type or a Trinitarian uh, event, that Yahweh is standing on that rock, that rock is Christ, and the water that comes out is the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I say that is because that's kind of what Jesus says. 
In John 7, verses 37 through 39, we read, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will, fro- will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, who those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, again, we've been learning how Scripture builds arguments, and it, it uses phrases, uh, phrase upon phrase, to explain something. Now, what Jesus is doing in this chapter, we don't have the context here, but Jesus in this chapter has just been accused by the religious leaders of his day as uh, being an evil guy, and they were they were coming to kill him and seeking to put his life uh, to death. And in the midst of that, he responds to them. He, he offers himself as spiritual drink to his enemies. The, they're coming to kill him in this chapter. And so that is just an amazing response. Threatened with his own death, our Lord makes an offer to those who are religiously hostile against him, saying, if you want, you can come to me and I'll, I'll be water for you. And I'll I'll provide for you a source of life and joy. In the midst of those who hate him, that's how Jesus responds. And Jesus is specifically saying, this is who I am. I am the rock, and if you come to me, you can drink. Now, in verse 39, it again, Scripture builds arguments, and so we're going to actually step through the argument backward uh, a bit. Um, in verse 39, he says, but this he spoke of the Spirit. This is a relative pronoun, or it's just a, it's a word that points to something else. It points to, in uh, verse 38, this idea of rivers of living water that flow out of your innermost being. That is, that something that's sustaining that's in your spirit. And he says, those who, who had believed in him, which is presently, that's a present uh, thing, uh, were to receive. That's a future event. And so Jesus is saying, if you believe in me currently, uh, verse 39 is saying, this he spoke of the Spirit, who those who currently believed in him were about to receive. And so we see, uh, even parenthetically in this, in this passage, that you can believe in Christ and not have rivers of, of living water flowing up out of your innermost being as the source of your joy and, and life. And so here, because Jesus was not yet glorified, uh, it says the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, what does it mean for Jesus to be glorified? It actually provides an answer in John 12. Jesus, when the Greeks come and ask to, they ask his disciples to come and see the Lord, Jesus realizes that the world is being attracted to him, and he notices at that time, he then declares, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then verses, John 13 through 17 are his discussion in the upper room with, uh, with his disciples. So the events that are leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus identifies those, uh, those things and, and the crucifixion itself as his glorification. Now, there is yet a further glorification that Jesus, uh, that, that happens to Jesus when he uh, is ascended at the right hand, but that's, a, uh, that's one and the same for, for him biblically. Um, Jesus dying is his glorification. He, he actually says in, in that chapter of John 12, 
Father, glorify your name. And then a voice comes out of heaven that says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. Speaking of a future event, the the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, um, oh, wow, I got that on the next slide. I got ahead of myself. But he specifically says in, in John 12, 23 through 24, he says, he connects it to his death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He is specifically saying, I'm going to be glorified by dying. And so the spirit coming after Jesus dies means that according to Moses and the event that took place with the children of Israel, Jesus is the rock and the spirit is, uh, is the water. And so as, as we begin to see these things, um, we can make connections. And the New Testament actually explicitly, we're going to close with 1 Corinthians, the, the New Testament specifically explains these things. This isn't, again, I want to convince you that this is not John Weiss's fun show. It's not, uh, it's not a technique that I developed. It is apostolic Christianity. It, the, it is the Christianity of the first century church. So we have seen over and over again um, this, this pattern that both people and things uh, point to God. Uh, they, they foreshadow Christ in the Old Testament. Um, one of the most beautiful things that I saw when I was working on this was Exodus 17.5. God says to Moses to take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. The very same staff that was used by Moses to destroy the powers of darkness in, in splitting the Nile and dividing the Nile is the same staff that strikes and wounds Christ. And in the midst of that, he is broken and his body is divided, just like the Nile. And, and so that staff of authority, in, in one real way, talks about the authority that Moses carries as being Yahweh's agent on the earth, but it also in a very real way symbolizes the cross. And um, I hadn't seen that before last night, and that really was beautiful to me. So we've seen over and over again this idea of a cyclical narrative. That is, there are stories in the Bible that happen time and again, and only a few things change. Um, A person, their name, or a people group, their name, or a place. And yet the same exact kind of event takes place. And um, this should make sense to us. We, We daily need spiritual drink. We need spiritual food daily. Um, we fall into the same sins over and over again, and um, people are mostly the same. Uh, there's a lot of differences. Um, it's a beautiful, wonderful crowd out here. You're all different in all of your different ways, but I can probably guess that most of you have lied and uh, probably stolen something, maybe even small. Uh, we are no different than, um, than, than each other. We are members of one another in Christ, and not only that, we all are uh, before we come to Christ, uh, under Adam, and we've all sinned. And so the, it's no surprise that um, the Bible records events that take place time and again with different people who are either sinning or, or you know, doing something for God. We've actually seen this before in this series when Abraham, he deceives um, the Egyptians, saying that his his wife is actually his sister. And then his son 
does the exact same thing when he he goes up against um, Abimelech, and 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 when he comes around Abimelech, he says that uh, that his wife is his sister because they they both thought that they they would be killed because their wives were really really cute, and so um, they actually deceived the deceiver in that instance, uh, and they did so righteously. By the way, the Bible never says a word against them doing that. Um, they knew that those men that they were encountering were evil, and so yet. Uh, even though Abimelech uh, and the Egyptians were deceived, and it was Isaac one time and Abraham another time, they were two separate yet extremely similar events. And we see that this week in Numbers 20. In Exodus 17, they were in the wilderness of sin, which isn't um, actually the, it's not actually sin, it's just a name. Um, it doesn't, it's just the way it's spelled. Um, you can ask God about that when you get to heaven. What was up with that? They were camped at a place called Rephidim. Um, and I'm terrible at pronouncing Hebrew names. So forgive me. Aaron's not mentioned at all in Exodus 17. Um, he wasn't installed as a priest. That, happen, that happens on Sinai, which is in the next uh, group of chapters in Exodus. Uh, Moses cries out to the Lord in a private place. It doesn't say where he went. And um, Yahweh specifically told Moses to strike the rock. Um, but in, in this instance here, in Numbers 20, they're in the wilderness of Zin, and they stayed at a place called Kadesh. Now, Kadesh is not the same as Rephidim. They, they have different names. And if you look in your map, in your Bible, if you have a map in your Bible, you will see that they are different places. And an entire year has taken place in between these two events. Um, they actually, Moses and Aaron both go to the tent of meeting and, uh, Yahweh tells Moses specifically to speak to the rock in front of the congregation versus the last time he told Moses to strike the rock in front of the elders. So it's a very similar thing, but it is two separate accounts. It's not like in most of the gospels where they record very similar events and they actually are the same events. Uh, sometimes it takes a little bit of work in, in reading your Bible to know when it's two separate events. But again, this idea of a cyclical never, narrative, this makes sense to us because um, this is this is typical for our lives. So in Numbers 20, verse 2, it says, There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. We've been looking at how people foreshadow what Christ is doing, and here Moses is foreshadowing what Christ does for us in the fact that Moses is a mediator. And for us, that might be a new concept. A mediator is just someone who talks between two parties. If I and you are quarreling, we might settle our quarrel instead of going to court, but we might go to what's called mediation. And we both agree to do whatever that mediator decides is good between us. And so Moses serves as a mediator for God and his people. And in between that, uh, the people are afraid of God and they don't want to talk to him. And Moses is friends with God. And Yahweh actually says of Moses, if there's a prophet among you, he dreams or has a vision, but I speak to Moses face to face. And Moses is a really good mediator. He, he spends a lot of time dealing with these Israelites. And by now he has learned how to relate to them. But in in verse uh, 2, it says um, that they, 
they assembled themselves against Moses. Now, it's important to have water in the desert. If you're going to be in the desert, you probably should take some water. It's not wrong that the people wanted water. It's wrong that they assembled themselves against the, the mediator. But in the midst of them assembling themselves against, Moses and Aaron, they go to speak to Yahweh, and Moses gets angry. And Yahweh tells them specifically to speak to the rock, not to strike it. He says to assemble the congregation, bring all the people before the rock and speak to it, and I'll provide water for you. There's no indication in this passage that Yahweh was angry with his people for wanting water. But Moses displays that anger, uh, his own anger, and he gets it wrong. In verse 10, it says, And Moses and Aaron gathered before the assembly, or gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water out of this rock? Moses is speaking harshly to people, and he was supposed to be speaking to a rock. God didn't tell Moses to say anything to the people. And not only that, he told him specifically to speak to the rock, not to strike it. In speaking harshly, and striking the rock twice, Moses displayed anger when there's no indication that Yahweh was angry. And so even Moses, great and righteous as he was, he was not a perfect mediator. We know that we need a better one. And it's important that we need a better mediator because of his anger that he displayed. Yahweh says about Moses, he says, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy, in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. That's tragic for us as the people of God, because we need a mediator who can bring us into the promised land. We need someone who can lead us into the place that God has established for us. And so Moses's sin, in the midst of Moses being a righteous man, that one sin that is, is, uh, is recorded about the way he communicates who God is to these people, that one sin is enough to keep him away, uh, away from the job of bringing us as the people of God into our destiny. We need a greater, greater mediator, and that greater mediator is Christ. So what does it mean to treat Yahweh as holy? Well, it means to trust his promise that he will provide you for you even in your desert seasons. It means to represent him well to your brothers and sisters and those under your spiritual care. But it also means that um, we need a greater mediator and a greater example. In 1 Peter 2, 21-23, we read concerning our great mediator, Jesus. For you have been called, Peter writing to uh, these Christians here, he says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return, and while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned 
to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I think we're going to save 1 Corinthians 17 for another day. Uh, maybe we'll just read the first five verses, just so you know. It's not me. It's vital for us that we understand that we are just like the Israelites. They were called out of Egypt, yet the name of the church is the Greek word ekklesia, and it means those who were called out. We were called out of darkness, as First Corinthians or Colossians 1 says, and into the kingdom of his light. And, and what that means for us is that we understand that we are prone to these same things. And Paul provides a warning to the Corinthians in chapter 10. We're only going to read the first five verses. He says to the Corinthians he, that these things were done as a warning. Verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. I think it's interesting that he says our fathers. He's writing to Greeks and Hellenistic Jews who are not of the lineage of the Israelites. Yet he says our fathers. He is directly saying with that one little phrase that the church is a continuation of the purposes of God on the earth. In verse 2, it says, And all were baptized into Moses, that is, all went in with Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. So let's pray. Father, we ask you that we would behold Jesus as magnificent, that we would see marvelous things from your law, that we would be fascinated with the beauty of Christ in the Old Testament, that we would be utterly amazed at the way that you have unveiled the Old Testament through not just inspiring prophets, but speaking through your Son directly to us, and also the testimony of your apostles written down in the New Testament. God, we ask you that we would see and savor Jesus, that we would come to him when we are thirsty, that we would come to him every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.